Hello, and welcome to Personalized Learning with Matt and Courtney. My name's Matt. Courtney's not here with me at the moment, but she will be shortly. On this podcast, we talk about the do-dos and don't-dos of personalized learning, and today we have a guest. Today's guest is George Karos, the author of two books. The first one is The Innovator's Mindset, and his latest book is named Innovate Inside the Box. They're great reads, and as you'll hear shortly, very inspirational. We discuss the elements of his core of innovative teaching and learning, what he's learned along his journey, and some things he used to do but no longer is, and how to innovate inside the current system, inside the box, as it were. So here's George. George, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've written a couple of books, uh, The Innovator's Mindset and your latest book, Innovate Inside the Box with Katie Novak. Uh, The first one's been vital in moving the conversation of what teaching and learning could be like. And the second's designed as a guide for educators to not let the constraints of education today get in the way of authentic learning. And we love them both. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I actually, um, I think this is surprising to a lot of people actually had really no interest in education. (laughs) Uh, I kind of went to university because my parents actually forced me to go. Yeah. Um, they're, they're both immigrants to Canada from Greece and they worked their butts off to, you know, give their kids opportunities that they didn't have. So kind of just ended up in education because my parents saw university, uh, a university degree is pretty important to, you know, that time, um, the time that I grew up in was important for kind of moving on to the next level. And so I actually am a trained uh I actually trained to become a kindergarten teacher and basically have taught everything but kindergarten. So I've taught grade one to 12. I've been administrator, um, a school level and district level. And now um, I, uh, I, I get to travel and speak with school districts. So it's really an interesting, really interesting opportunity because a lot of people, when they hear like speaker or consultant, they think that, you know, you're coming in and telling people, what to do and I, I to be honest yeah, I never tell anybody what to do I share ideas and thoughts and my hope is that people kind of take them and you know remake them to understand their context because I don't understand their context as well as they do right. but I think the the really interesting part about my job is that I get to see a perspective of schools all over the world and I get to see so many different things and it, you just have a different um, lens when you're doing that. And I think a lot of times when, you know, you're in a school district for years and years and years, there's wonderful advantages to that, you know, how you build relationships, how you know people, how you can get to move forward. But I also think that um, you, you kind of can get stuck in seeing the same thing over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, the culture is kind of the culture. And, and so I think that I get to see some of the best and some stuff that's not so great. And, and it really helps to kind of round out my perspective. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I do miss the relationships I have working in the same place every single day. Um, but there is some really unique opportunities when you get to travel and, and, and visit with schools all over because you learn a ton from them if you're, if you're willing to listen and willing to be open to learning. And for me, that's something that I'm really passionate about is that I'm always growing and always learning that I, I don't, know everything. I don't think I'm an expert in anything. I just, I'm really passionate about learning. 
I think that your, your passion for learning and your willingness to take in new ideas really comes through in all of your work. And so one question in particular, when you describe the elements that comprise your core of innovative teaching and yep. learning, yep. you talk about learner driven and data informed. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, the term is uh, learner driven evidence informed. And I think um, there is a reason why I make that distinction. Uh -huh. One of the things that I saw, um, and I think this is something I've seen from so many schools, and people talk about data driven, data driven, data driven. And um, that usually comes honestly from administrators, not always, but the majority of times, if people say that, they are at an administrator level. And the intent of the intent of the people that are saying it i truly believe is really good it's really to help kids but what a lot of educators hear is all we're about is the test scores that's all that matters like do whatever you can to get those test scores up and i think it's and i can and i'm not making an assumption here i know this because i've been told this by teachers um, all over the place and i can tell by um, one of the statements I make in the book is how data driven is pretty much the stupidest term in education. And I say that almost for, I say that almost for a shock value. Like mm -hmm. I say it to, to get people uncomfortable because you see a lot of people that say it feel uncomfortable, but you also, every time I say it, I'm in a room full of teachers, they all applaud. And so that, that tells you something, right? And so the reason why I talk about learner-driven evidence-informed is the idea that really understanding the people in front of you is the most important work we can do. Like understand who your kids are, um, what drives them, what's passionate about, what are some experiences, what are the strengths they bring to you know, your classrooms and tapping into that and bringing that out of them and so what the distinction that i make that is very important is that i'm not saying data is stupid i'm saying being driven by scores is an issue mm -hmm. and so the other reason why i i talk about not data but evidence is because evidence again the the definition of the term data is actually much more holistic than the way we use the terminology mm -hmm. um, in education in many cases a lot of people when they talk about data they're talking test scores. Um, they're talking, you know, um, like it's, it's all numerical. Right. And so when we talk about evidence, people see that word as much more holistic, right? It can be test scores. Right. It can be assignments, but it can be like, for example, um, uh, there's a superintendent in New York and she, she will always talk about when they have like concerts on at the school, she just, she makes the distinction that, what you're looking at is that you hear a lot about tests in our district and that's one of the ways that we're measured by the state but what you are seeing tonight is incredible evidence of learning through this and you can't put a number value on it but you will see incredible learning and so i think that when we talk about the term evidence it actually starts to change the way we look at assessment we start to not always, and this is something I really believe is that how we assess is what drives our teaching, not the other way around. And so if we're looking at, like, if all we hear about test scores, test scores, test scores, then we start teaching to the test. Right. And I think that's where the issue is. And, and here's the contention. I think this is the kind of whole premise of Innovative Side of the Box, is that I truly believe that if you know the kids in front of you, 
if you understand them and you start tapping into what they're really good at, I, I believe the test scores will go up. I actually believe the kids will actually do better on the, the things that we're looking at. But more importantly, I think they'll actually be better equipped for life. And I think that to me is, is actually is way more important. And so I, I acknowledge that we can't just ignore test scores because a lot of it's more so in the States than it is in Canada. You know, a lot of schools, the funding is tied to it, right? Like, yeah. So I'm, I, I'm not in any way saying ignore that because it's, it'd be easy for me to say that, but it's not realistic and it's not helpful. It's really, if you know the kids, like it, for me, you know, if I, if I am a boss of any company or, you know, principal or superintendent, I believe that if you really value the people and you try to tap into them, the organization will do better, which is no different than my belief in a classroom. But if it's all about get the results, get the results, get the results, I actually see that sometimes you get the results, but we, we don't want to be, as soon as we can get out, we want to get out. Right. And that's, that's, that's the, I think that's why I make that distinction because I think we're losing a lot of our kids um, in pursuit of scores. And I think right. that's something I have a big issue with. So one um, really important aspect of um, education innovation and a piece that Matt and I are particularly passionate about is this idea of empowering learners. Mm -hmm. That can be a really scary thought for some teachers because it implies that the teacher has less control and thus it becomes a little fuzzy as to what is happening right in the classroom or in the schools. So how do you get across to teachers that empowering learners actually improves their learning and can actually improve the climate in the classroom? Well, it's it's actually really interesting because, um, you know, there's this kind of belief that a lot of teachers are control freaks, and you kind of alluded to that a little bit, you know, that they want to have control, yet they also are the people that I know that hate being controlled the most, right. pretty much <laughs> of anyone I know, right? Yeah. Right? Like, it's true, right? Like, you know, the you know, they, they don't necessarily want to be told this is how you do things. And I think kind of pointing that out sometimes is, is saying like, how do you as a, an educator, how do you as a professional do best? What are the ways if I told, if I script your classroom, but make it really engaging the way I scripted it, I, I don't think you'd be too excited, but if I say, okay, like, here's what I need you to do, how you figure out the journey on how to get your kids there. Teachers appreciate that. Teachers want that ownership. And I think that kind of, I, I think that if we can create environments, and I talk a lot about this in the first book in the innovators mindset, when you create an environment where you are explicitly giving teacher, teachers more ownership, more um, of, the path, of the journey of the pathway. When you're really looking to empower educators, it becomes a trickle-down effect. But I think a lot of teachers are somewhat kind of controlling, not because, like, again, not because their intentions are bad. I don't think, I don't really believe that any educators, like, I'm, obviously there's some in the world, right? But I don't think the like 99.9% .9 of educators in the world, they want what's best for kids. Yeah. But I think that they, they are a lot of times really controlled by their district, by their superintendent. Like I'm hearing about like, you know, like I could never teach with a script. I could never do that. And I don't think that's good for us practice. 
And I think the, the whole mentality behind the script is that every kid has the same experience, but really what we should be doing is that every kid should have the opportunity to be successful. That means, but that means their experience won't all be the same. Right. Because, so I think that if you, if we want to empower our students, we have to look at how we get, you know, teachers to experience that ownership, that empowerment themselves, and then see the benefits of it. And then they're more likely to want to create that. And so I think, that's something that, you know, if we're really moving teachers to that space or we want to move our students to space, you have to model that as, as administrators. No, I, th- I think that flows right into the, the next question that we have, because uh, I was looking at the discussion questions in your book, and one of them really stood out to me. Uh, it was, what is something you used to do as an educator that you no longer do, and why did you stop doing it? Uh, that really appealed to me, because I know I made a lot of changes over the years when I was teaching. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm an administrator now, and even though I'm an administrator, I tend to change up the ways I, I do things every year because I, I try to reflect on what I do. Uh, and as you were talking there, it's like, we, we can ask that of our kids a lot. It's like, you know, what have you tried that doesn't work? Or yeah. what have you tried? And what, if you're trying something and it doesn't work, what, what are you changing? And what, why, do, why do you continue to do it? So what, what, how is that, how is that question really worked when, when you talk about that with teachers? Well, I think, I think the whole premise of when we talk about this is that we talk about, you know, how change is hard and, you know, how tough it is, but what you're actually seeing is there's a ton of change that has happened over years. Um, and, you know, like some of the things that my teachers used to do, they would never do. And some things I used to do as a teacher, I totally rally against to this day that, you know, and um, a lot of times the reason we do things is because they're, they were done to us, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I'll give you an example. Anyone listening to this who's in education has either heard or said, the bell doesn't dismiss you, I dismiss you. <laughs> now, I didn't, I didn't make that up, right? Yep. Now, I, I, that was said to me, and um, it was something I said. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually see that the, the teacher that said that to me, they didn't make it up. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to save that for when I become a teacher, right? Somebody <laughs> said that to them as a kid. You know, somebody said that to them when they were a kid. And, you know, it's just kind of passed on over generations. And I think that we have to, like, identify some of these things. But I think it's really important that when we're looking to grow and make things better, we have to, like put ourselves in a situation where we start to understand where we've actually already grown, that we know we actually have the capabilities and the capacity to change because we've already done it. Right. Like I say this all the time is that there's things that you and I and um, Courtney, we all do that. We swore we would never do. And now it's normal. Right. Like I never thought I'd use any social media to connect with educators. And now I do it all the time. You know, I never thought, you know, just a, a ton of things that, that I do. I hated running as a kid and now I run every single day. Right. So it's, it's, um, it's just, it's just kind of, kind of highlighting that we know we have the capability to change because we've already done it. So one of my favorite phrases to use that I wish I used more often, but what you just said reminds me of it is I used to think, but now I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, and I, th- I think that is. Uh, I think that is important to see your progression of. I guess there's like a lot of the things that I talk about today. Yeah. Like honestly, my my friends 
that from back home, they read my stuff and they're like, what, what happened to you? Like, <laughs> right, you're not the same. Yeah, like this is, you're like way smarter than I, when I knew you. <laughs> right? Yeah, because they just are, like they just, you know, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like a weird, and it's good. That's good to have people that humble you like that and, you know, sure. just, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's really important to see our own growth, especially when we're trying to move other people forward. We have to identify yeah. that we were, we were once stuck um, on something as well. So speaking of being humbled, uh, my next question <clears throat> could be more of a, like a, a personal <laughs> one, I guess. So a challenge yeah. that I'm facing right now is that I have moved from a district uh, that was pretty advanced in their knowledge uh, of yeah. learner-centeredness and proficiency-based practices. Uh, and now I'm in a district that doesn't have really any of that background knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the position was created for me basically to help begin those discussions, uh, to do the job of advancing the district, helping develop the curriculum, helping teachers, all that sort of thing. But I really struggle with how to make those connections with the admins and the teachers that are here without, without offending any of them and mm -hmm. without, moving, without moving them along too fast. Uh, do you have any advice for a person that'd be in my situation? Well, first of all, it's way better to be in that situation than the reverse, because <laughs> you'd be in trouble, right? Very true. Because you wouldn't know what you, right? Yep. And, and really, you got nowhere to go but up. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way to look at it. I think for me, what's really um, changed my own practice um, is really, and I, like, I'm trying to, I know this is audio, so I'm trying to think of how I can explain this visual. Um, so let's say I'm at a hundred and I have someone who's working at a zero, right? And so a lot of times what we do is we expect people to jump to the hundred and if they don't, we're disappointed. And so I think by talking and having conversations, you'll actually find those people who are not at a zero. They're at like a 10 or 20, right? And so what we need to do is we need to go to that 20, celebrate that, and see if we can get just them to move a little bit forward. And I think a lot of times what I used to do and what I don't do anymore, as Courtney was talking about, is I just kind of expect, like, if you're not doing what I'm doing, you are becoming irrelevant. And now what I'm really focusing on is that everyone that I encounter, no matter what their role, they already have strengths. So I'm trying to figure out what those are. I'm trying to see what they're already doing that kind of is already toward the larger vision and just help them move forward so they're building confidence and competence. And I think a lot of times the, the wrong approach is when we want people to move forward is that we talk when we actually need to listen and listen and find out where people are, celebrate that, identify that. Because I think that a lot of times we, like in education, and I think it's something that I really try to do focus on. Um, I know that in both my books I talked about because you have a you have like this camp that's focused on innovation and this camp that's focused on the basics and basically these are like two opposite camps and they have nothing to do with that. And my belief is that no, they're actually connected and we have to like find the connections between the two because basically both of those camps actually have the exact same goal is to help kids. And so I think that when we identify those things that, you know, what is relevant, what's necessary um, 
with other people and then we listen to them and we can find out what they are, you'll, you'll actually not only help that person grow, but you'll grow through that process as well. And I think that's, I think a lot of times when we go in with the mentality that we're coming to fix a place and um, we actually don't grow ourselves. And I think that when we're looking like, Hey, this, this is a really good opportunity for me to develop myself. I think that that actually is beneficial to everybody. Excellent. Thank you. That helps me a lot. And I found oh, that's like a, a therapy question that I just helped you out with. Well, kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was funny talk about finding those, finding yeah. those people who are at the 20. Uh, yeah. About an hour ago, I found one of those that knows quite a bit, but just mm -hmm. doesn't know how to put it all together. So Yeah, and I, I think what's important is that like when I use that number analogy, you need to understand you're at a 20 on something and they're at a hundred. Hell yeah. Right? <laughs> and you gotta, you gotta, and when you can identify those things, too, they feel appreciated and valued. And I think that's really important is that like, I'm good at some things, but there's a lot of things I'm terrible at. And I want to make sure that it's not just about what I believe we should be doing, but how do I learn from those other people so I can grow in the areas that they excel as well? I think a lot of educators want to be innovative. And this is, mm -hmm. this is what you write about and what you go around talking about. And I also feel that many of them still feel stifled by yeah. structures in education systems and yeah. actually would really like to see drastic change, you know, like mm -hmm. totally wipe it out, start from the beginning. And truth be told, many of us want that and advocate for it. And mm -hmm. we know it's going to take a very, very long time. So what advice do you have for those people that want to innovate right now within the current system? Well, Katie Novak, and she didn't say this in the book, and I wish she would, because it's so good. She said it after when we were talking. <laughs> um, she said that the, the grade three kids that you have in your class this year, this is their one year for grade three. So how do we do everything to make that the best grade three experience possible? And I think a lot of times you'll see school districts with like 20, 30 plans, okay. and they're trying to identify all these things in the future, but that kid doesn't care. And I think that's like, we're so often so focused on the changes need to be made in the future that we actually forget the kids who this is their one experience in school. This is their one time in that grade level. And so I think we have to identify that. And part of it too is I've been in education long enough that when I wait for things like central office to make the change or a government to change a policy that you're going to be waiting forever. And even when, if it ever does happen, some new government will come in and they'll re regress you back 10 years. So like, it, it just like, I, I, for me is kind of, we got to learn. Somebody said this and I'm going to screw this up because I can't remember who said it. They basically said like, you have to learn to play the rules. Like I'm sure being on the East coast, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the New England Patriots and who, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like one of the one of the reasons they're so good is they actually learn to play the rules. Like they they actually understand the rules and then they take advantage of the rules in many cases that they know stuff inside out, but they still have to work within the same system that every other football team works with them. And like you know, I know I'm not. I, I try not to use sports analogies, even though I'm a big you know sports fan. But I think for me, we have to like identify some of these opportunities. Like I was actually a lot of times I'm seeing um, like classrooms and like you know the funding structure where I live compared to a lot of places in the states is is really different. 
And um, I see a lot of schools advocating to like get donations and things like that. And I totally understand why they do it. Like they want everything for their kids. But is there an opportunity for like, you know, where you're not doing a GoFundMe, but you're doing like, you're creating a product, you know, you're, you're creating something where kids are actually creating something within the curriculum and, you know, maybe selling it and earning some of the stuff back mm. for the classroom. Cause there's so many of those opportunities out there. And I'm not saying all schools should do that, but is that, is that a way we actually, we need this for the class. We are going to try to create more ownership because the kids in the classroom actually create something to like earn that. Right. And like, I think that's where we're going to start looking at, you know, like, Hey, it'd be great if, I'll tell you if the if 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 you like you have a lot of schools that you know have pretty decent funding, and I'm not maybe not in the U.S. like in a public school system, but I'm seeing them, and they're still encountering a lot of the problems that they're the schools that are not adequately funded are, and it's all about how they think. Right. So you know it's. You know, they, they'll, they'll say, we don't get this, we don't get this, even though they have way more than some of those other schools. So I think it's just kind of looking at, and, and like, I don't want anyone thinking, like, George is saying, oh, school shouldn't be better funded. That's not what I'm saying, <laughs> right? Because I, like, I, you know, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't have the authority to do that. What, what I do have is the ability to understand what my constraints are, what I'm supposed to do, what I hope to do and try to figure out how best I can do that. And I think that's where I feel more comfort when I take ownership over how do I figure out this problem as opposed to, well, I hope someone else comes and fixes this for me. So right, right. I think that's, that's just, that's how, you know, and I know like it's, you know, I know that's not always easy. And I know that for me, part of the role of administrators is like administrators roles. This is something I believe they can do right now. And anyone who's listening to this, a lot of times when people work, and I'm talking specifically central office, they believe they justify their roles by giving you more stuff to do to justify why they have a job, when in fact, their role should be the exact opposite. How do I get rid of as many things as possible from the teachers in the classroom so they can just go teach? And I think that part of it is that we create some of these problems ourselves, like um, I talk to a lot of districts and they'll say, oh, like, you know, we're over testing. We're over testing. I'm like, well, who's over testing? The state? Or are you over testing because you're making kids do 15 tests before the state test because you want them to do well in the test so you have 15 practice tests before that? And so that, like, a lot of times there are some problems in education that we as schools create ourselves. And we have to identify some of those and, you know, what are they? And, and, and why are we doing some of those things? Like one of the things I say, um, you know, when we talk about the testing culture is you don't fatten a pig by constantly weighing it. You have to, you know, <laughs> so I think, I think, I just think, I just think that, like I said, there's a lot of it. I, I know that when I take ownership over the, the problem, I have more opportunity for success. Well, I'm hoping I am one of those central office administrators that are doing yeah. the right thing and not the wrong thing. That's why I made sure I said it before. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, George, we're just about done here. Thank you for your time. Uh, so one thing we ask all of our guests is to respond to our tagline a little bit. In our tagline, we talk about the do-dos and don't-dos of personalized learning. 
And so can you give us your biggest doo-doo for our listeners? I actually, um, like a really practical strategy um, that I might be able to give you when we're talking about the personalization of learning. Uh, I actually have, and you can Google this, uh, but it's also in the book, uh, five questions you should ask your students at the beginning of the year. And so I asked them, um, like questions I suggest, and anyone reading this who finds it or listening to this and finds it, you, no one, you, ha- you could do it, find the questions, modify, recreate, do whatever you want, like, like they're yours to do whatever you want with. But the questions I ask are like, what are you passionate about? Um, what's a big question you have? What are your strengths? Like things like that. And the whole premise of that is to help you understand and know the kids in front of you so you can actually start tailoring some of the opportunities for them. So like, this is something I bring up all the time in my work with groups. Like most people that are my age and, you know, went to school, had to read The Great Gatsby. And then I follow up and ask, was The Great Gatsby actually in the curriculum? Was it said, you must read The Great Gatsby? Because I actually believe a lot of kids read The Great Gatsby because we already owned 100 copies at the school. The teacher knew it. And then they had to read it and it covered the curriculum requirements, right? But I actually, to this day, I'm not a big fiction fan. I've never been a big fiction fan. I really like, I love reading, but not fiction. And, and people get mad at me for saying that, you know, but there's a lot of people who don't like nonfiction. There's a lot, I played sports and they had a huge benefit of me and a lot of people, everyone has different strengths and different passions that have helped them grow as a person and professional. So if you would have, I did everything to avoid reading fiction. And so if you would have known that one of my passions was basketball and how much I love basketball. When I was a kid, could you have maybe said, hey, you know what? There's this book called The Jordan Rules. Maybe you'd be interested in that. Would you read it? And could you still have covered the curriculum right. in a way that would have met all the needs? And then actually, and I think this is an important point, if, I, if you would have given me the opportunity to read something I like, maybe I would have been more interested in The Great Gatsby after. Maybe I would have been more interested. But because I went through this process of like, well, I, I'm just not interested in any of these books, then, you know, I was already, I was already in one direction by the time I got to grade 11, we all had to read The Great Gatsby. And so I think just knowing the kids you are in front of you and like, and this is really important for me to say, because realistically, you're not going to tailor every single thing that you do in your classroom to every individual kid, especially as we're seeing class sizes go up. But if you can tailor some things, then the stuff they don't want to do becomes much more tolerable. But if, if school is only stuff that I don't want to do, then we have a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's for me, you know, those five questions are really to like get to know your kids right away. Like see if you could tap into some of those interests to, again, you know, like you still have to teach the curriculum. I'm not, no one's saying don't teach curriculum, but can you teach it in a way that actually makes a meet where a kid can make a meaningful connection in their own home? George, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. No problem. It doesn't matter.